Book Two, Chapter Four, Part One of the Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Presley's socialistic poem, The Toilers, had an enormous success. The editor of the Sunday supplement of the San Francisco paper to which it was sent printed it in Gothic type, with a scarehead title so decorative as to be almost illegible, and furthermore caused the poem to be illustrated by one of the paper's staff artists in a most impressive fashion. The whole affair occupied an entire page. Thus advertised, the poem attracted attention. It was promptly copied in New York, Boston, and Chicago papers. It was discussed, attacked, defended, eulogized, ridiculed. It was praised with the most fulsome adulation, assailed with the most violent condemnation. Editorials were written upon it. Special articles in literary pamphlets dissected its rhetoric and prosody. The phrases were quoted, were used as texts for revolutionary sermons, revolutionary speeches, it was parodied. It was distorted so as to read as an advertisement for patented cereals and infants' foods. Finally, the editor of an enterprising monthly magazine reprinted the poem, supplementing it by a photograph and biography of Presley himself. Presley was stunned, bewildered. He began to wonder at himself. Was he actually the greatest American poet since Bryant? He had had no thought of fame while composing the toilers. He had only been moved to his heart's foundations, thoroughly in earnest, seeing clearly, and had addressed himself to the poem's composition in a happy moment when the words came easily to him, and the elaboration of fine sentences was not difficult. Was it thus fame was achieved? For a while he was tempted to cross the continent and go to New York and there come into his own, enjoying the triumph that awaited him but soon he denied himself this cheap reward. Now he was too much in earnest. He wanted to help his people, the community in which he lived, the little world of the San Joaquin at grapples with the railroad. The struggle had found its poet. He told himself that his place was here. Only the words of the manager of a lecture bureau troubled him for a moment. To range the entire nation, telling all his countrymen of the drama that was working itself out on this fringe of the continent, this ignored and distant Pacific coast, rousing their interest and stirring them up to action, appealed to him. It might do great good to devote himself to the cause, accepting no penny of remuneration, to give his life to loosing the grip of the iron-hearted monster of steel and steam would be beyond question heroic. Other states than California had their grievances. All over the country the family of Cyclops was growing. He would declare himself the champion of the people in their opposition to the trust. He would be an apostle, a prophet, a martyr of freedom. But Presley was essentially a dreamer, not a man of affairs. He hesitated to act at this precise psychological moment, striking while the iron was yet hot, and while he hesitated, other affairs near at hand began to absorb his attention. One night, about an hour after he had gone to bed, he was awakened by the sound of voices on the porch of the ranch house, and descending found Mrs. Dyke there with Sidney. The ex-engineer's mother was talking to Magnus and Harran. 
and crying as she talked. It seemed that Dyke was missing. He had gone into town early that afternoon with the wagon and team and was to have been home for supper. But now it was ten o'clock and there was no news of him. Mrs. Dyke told how she first had gone to Quien Sabe, intending to telephone from there to Bonneville, but Annixter was in San Francisco, and in his absence the house was locked up, and the overseer, who had a duplicate key, was himself in Bonneville. She had telegraphed three times from Guadalajara to Bonneville for news of her son, but without result. Then at last, tortured with anxiety, she had gone to Hooven's, taking Sidney with her, and had prevailed upon Bismarck to hitch up and drive her across Los Muertos to the governor's, to beg him to telephone into Bonneville to know what had become of Dyke. While Harran rang up Central in town, Mrs. Dyke told Presley and Magnus of the lamentable change in Dyke. "'They have broken my son's spirit, Mr. Derrick,' she said. "'If you were only there to see—' hour after hour he sits on the porch with his hands lying open in his lap looking at them without a word he, he won't look me in the face any more and he don't sleep night after night he has walked the floor until morning and he will go on that way for days together very silent with, without a word and sitting still in his chair and then all of a sudden he will break out oh mr derrick it is terrible into an awful rage, cursing, swearing, grinding his teeth, his hands clenched over his head, stamping so that the house shakes, and saying that if S. Behrman don't give him back his money, he will kill him with his two hands. But that isn't the worst, Mr. Derrick. He goes to Mr. Carraher's saloon now, and stays there for hours, and listens to Mr. Carraher. There is something on my son's mind i know there is something that he and mr carraher have talked over together and i can't find out what it is mr carraher is a bad man and my son has fallen under his influence the tears filled her eyes bravely she tried to hide them turning away to take sidney in her arms putting her head upon the little girl's shoulder i, I, I haven't broken down before mr derrick she said but after we have been so happy in our little house, just us three, and the future seemed so bright, oh, God will punish the gentlemen who own the railroad for being so hard and cruel. Harran came out on the porch from the telephone, and she interrupted herself, fixing her eyes eagerly upon him. I think it is all right, Mrs. Dyke, he said reassuringly. We know where he is, I believe. You and the little tad stay here, and Hooven and I will go after him. About two hours later, Harran brought Dyke back to Los Muertos in Hooven's wagon. He had found him at Carraher's saloon, very drunk. There was nothing maudlin about Dyke's drunkenness. In him, the alcohol merely roused the spirit of evil, vengeful, reckless. As the wagon passed out from under the eucalyptus trees about the ranch house, Taking Mrs. Dyke, Sidney, and the one-time engineer back to the hop ranch, Presley, leaning from his window, heard the latter remark, Carraher is right. There's only one thing they listen to, and that's dynamite. The following day, Presley drove Magnus over to Guadalajara to take the train for San Francisco. 
but after he had said good-bye to the governor he was moved to go on to the hop ranch to see the condition of affairs in that quarter he returned to los muertos overwhelmed with sadness and trembling with anger the hop ranch that he had last seen in the full tide of prosperity was almost a ruin work had evidently been abandoned long since weeds were already choking the vines everywhere the poles sagged and drooped many had even fallen dragging the vines with them spreading them over the ground in an inextricable tangle of dead leaves decaying tendrils and snarled string the fence was broken the unfinished storehouse which never was to see completion was a lamentable spectacle of gaping doors and windows a melancholy skeleton last of all presley had caught a glimpse of dyke himself seated in his rocking-chair on the porch his beard and hair unkempt motionless looking with vague eyes upon his hands that lay palm upwards and idle in his lap magnus on his way to san francisco was joined at bonneville by osterman upon seating himself in front of the master of los muertos in the smoking car of the train this latter pushing back his hat and smoothing his bald head observed governor you look all frazzled out anything wrong these days the other answered in the negative but for all that osterman was right the governor had aged suddenly his former erectness was gone the broad shoulders stooped a little, the strong lines of his thin-lipped mouth were relaxed, and his hand, as it clasped over the yellowed ivory knob of his cane, had an unwanted tremulousness not hitherto noticeable. But the change in Magnus was more than physical. At last, in the full tide of power, the president of the League, known and talked of in every county of the state, leader in a great struggle, consulted, deferred to as the prominent man, at length attaining that position so long and vainly sought for, he yet found no pleasure in his triumph, and little but bitterness in life. His success had come by devious methods, had been reached by obscure means. He was a briber. He could never forget that. To further his ends, disinterested, public-spirited, even philanthropic as those were, he had connived with knavery. He, the politician of the old school, of such rigorous integrity, who had abandoned a career rather than compromise with honesty. At this eleventh hour, involved and entrapped in the fine-spun web of a new order of things, bewildered by Osterman's dexterity, by his volubility and glibness, goaded and harassed beyond the point of reason by the aggression of the trust he fought, he had at last failed. He had fallen. He had given a bribe. He had thought that, after all, this would make but little difference with him. The affair was known only to Osterman, Broderson, and Annixter. They would not judge him, being themselves involved. He could still preserve a bold front, could still hold his head high. As time went on, the affair would lose its point. But this was not so. Some subtle element of his character had forsaken him. He felt it. He knew it. Some certain stiffness that had given him all his rigidity, that had lent force to his authority, weight to his dominance, temper to his fine, inflexible hardness was diminishing day by day. 
in the decisions which he, as president of the League, was called upon to make so often, he now hesitated. He could no longer be arrogant, masterful, acting upon his own judgment, independent of opinion. He began to consult his lieutenants, asking their advice, distrusting his own opinions. He made mistakes, blunders, and when those were brought to his notice, took refuge in bluster. He knew it to be bluster, knew that sooner or later his subordinates would recognize it as such. How long could he maintain his position? So only he could keep his grip upon the lever of control till the battle was over. All would be well. If not, he would fall, and once fallen he knew that now, briber that he was, he would never rise again. He was on his way at this moment to the city to consult with Lyman as to a certain issue of the contest between the railroad and the ranchers which of late had been brought to his notice. When appeal had been taken to the Supreme Court by the League's Executive Committee, certain test cases had been chosen, which should represent all the lands in question. Neither Magnus nor Annixter had so appealed, believing, of course, that their cases were covered by the test cases on trial in Washington. Magnus here had blundered again, and the League's agents in San Francisco had written to warn him that the railroad might be able to take advantage of a technicality, and by pretending that neither Quien Sabe nor Los Muertos were included in the appeal, attempt to put its dummy buyers in possession of the two ranches before the Supreme Court handed down its decision. The ninety days allowed for taking this appeal were nearly at an end, and after then the railroad could act. Osterman and Magnus at once decided to go up to the city, there joining Annixter, who had been absent from Quien Sabe for the last ten days, and talk the matter over with Lyman. Lyman, because of his position as commissioner, might be cognizant of the railroad's plans, and at the same time could give sound legal advice as to what was to be done should the new rumor prove true. Say, remarked Osterman, as the train pulled out of the Bonneville station and the two men settled themselves for the long journey, Say, Governor, what's all up with Buck Annixter these days? He's got a bean about something, sure. I had not noticed, answered Magnus. Mr. Annixter has been away some time lately. I cannot imagine what should keep him so long in San Francisco. That's it, said Osterman, winking. Have three guesses. Guess right and you get a cigar. I guess G-I-R-L spells Hilma Tree. <laughs> and a little while ago she quit Quien Sabe and hiked out to Frisco. So did Buck. Do I draw the cigar? It's up to you. I have noticed her, observed Magnus, a fine figure of a woman. She would make some man a good wife. <laughs> wife? Buck Annixter marry? Not much. He's gone a-girling at last, old Buck. It's as funny as twins. Have to josh him about it when I see him, sure. But when Osterman and Magnus at last fell in with Annixter in the vestibule of the Lick House on Montgomery Street, nothing could be got out of him. He was in an execrable humor. When Magnus had broached the subject of business, he had declared that all business could go to pot. And when Osterman, his tongue in his cheek, had permitted himself a most distant allusion to a female girl, Annixter had cursed him for a busy face, so vociferously and tersely that even Osterman was cowed. "'Well,' 
insinuated Osterman. What are you dallying around Frisco so much for? Cat fur to make kitten breeches, retorted Annixter with oracular vagueness. Two weeks before this time, Annixter had come up to the city and gone at once to a certain hotel on Bush Street behind the First National Bank that he knew was kept by a family connection of the trees. In his conjecture that Hilma and her parents would stop here, he was right. Their names were on the register. Ignoring custom, Annixter marched straight up to their rooms, and before he was well aware of it was eating crow before old man tree. Hilma and her mother were out at the time. Later on, Mrs. Tree returned alone, leaving Hilma to spend the day with one of her cousins who lived far out on Stanyan Street in a little house facing the park. Between Annixter and Hilma's parents, a reconciliation had been effected, Annixter convincing them both of his sincerity in wishing to make Hilma his wife. Hilma, however, refused to see him. As soon as she knew he had followed her to San Francisco, she had been unwilling to return to the hotel and had arranged with her cousin to spend an indefinite time at her house. She was wretchedly unhappy during all this time and would not set foot out of doors and cried herself to sleep night after night. She detested the city. Already she was miserably homesick for the ranch. She remembered the days she had spent in the little dairy house, happy in her work, making butter and cheese, skimming the great pans of milk, scouring the copper vessels and vats, plunging her arms elbow-deep into the white curds, coming and going in that atmosphere of freshness, cleanliness, and sunlight, gay, singing, supremely happy just because the sun shone. She remembered her long walks toward the mission late in the afternoons, her excursions for cresses underneath the long trestle, the crowing of the cocks, the distant whistle of the passing trains, the faint sounding of the Angelus. She recalled with infinite longing the solitary expanse of the ranches, the level reaches between the horizons, full of light and silence, the heat at noon the cloudless iridescence of the sunrise and sunset. She had been so happy in that life. Now all those days were past. This crude, raw city, with its crowding houses all of wood and tin, its blotting fogs, its uproarious trade winds, disturbed and saddened her. There was no outlook for the future. At length, one day, about a week after Annixter's arrival in the city, she was prevailed upon to go for a walk in the park. She went alone, putting on for the first time the little hat of black straw with its puff of white silk her mother had bought for her, a pink shirt-waist, her belt of imitation alligator skin, her new skirt of brown cloth, and her low shoes set off with their little steel buckles. She found a tiny summer-house, built in Japanese fashion, around a diminutive pond, and sat there for a while, her hands folded in her lap, amused with watching the goldfish, wishing she knew not what. End of Book Two, Chapter Four, Part One